0: Hello and welcome to Old Boys Club,
1: a podcast where two young women explain the ins and outs of Australian politics. And there's no such thing
0: as a silly question. My name is Justine Landis-Hanley. I'm a Melbourne-based journalist and I used to work very briefly in politics.
1: My name is Matilda Bosley. I'm also a Melbourne-based journalist.
0: End. (laughs) Nothing else this week.
1: Nothing else. You're not a
0: Pokemon Go trainer.
1: Oh, I've fallen off the wagon with Pokemon Go a little. You're
0: not like building a Sims mansion. Nah,
1: fallen off the wagon a bit with Sims. You've gone through every
0: high school related job you ever did. Yeah, I am growing oyster mushrooms out of a bucket. (laughs) You've become an oyster mushroom farmer? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, real,
1: real life Farmville up in my laundry.
0: Coming up on the show this week... We are doing things a bit different. Yes, we have
1: decided to dedicate the whole episode to answering your most urgent of Oz Poll questions. We
0: get a lot of questions sent into us on Instagram and Facebook pretty regularly, and so we thought this week the news is I wouldn't say quiet. No, there's a lot going on, but not. Not a, much straight politics. A lot politics. of the same. And a lot of the same things that have been covered in previous weeks. Well,
1: yeah, it's like Sydney is a mess. Melbourne is angry at Sydney. The federal government needs, needs, needs vaccine.
0: It's all, I mean, it's really iterations of the same theme, isn't it? So we're going to briefly touch on the news, but we wanted to finally create space in an episode to tackle as many of your OzPod questions as we possibly could. With our beautiful segment, Quet can you please say it with Sorry. me? Sorry, questions, questions on, on notice. notice! Which
1: we said we were going to do like four episodes ago, but then all of our episodes... <laughs> were so we, full. We end up talking for too long and every week we're like, we're going to do questions on notice this week. We're going to put one in at the end. So we just decided to dedicate a whole episode to it. But first, Matilda, before
0: we dive into everyone else's questions, yep, yep, I yep, have yep. a question for you. Please, please. <laughs> and because I co-host this show, I get to ask it first. <laughs> wow, that's
1: nepotism. <laughs>
0: I That's hope politics. That, I hope that you're okay with being part of the problem, Justine. <laughs> okay, fine. I'm willing to be part of the problem if it means that you actually talk about the news this week. Okay, please do. Okay. My question is, and I think everyone will appreciate me asking it. Hopefully, what is going on in New South Wales in terms of COVID? But now the state premier's calls for more vaccines to be delivered to the population to try and prevent this outbreak of the Delta strain of COVID?
1: Yeah, so very quickly, uh, cases are not going well in Sydney at the moment. It's getting bigger, it's getting worse, it's looking difficult to see when the end date of this lockdown might be. What do you
0: mean by case numbers are big? Can you give me some specific numbers? Uh, I mean,
1: on Saturday, the day we're recording this, it was 163, which is, you know, a 30 case jump from even just the day before. So on Friday, when uh, case numbers were in, you know, the 130 territory, the uh, New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian came out and she declared a national emergency, which to be clear, like, there's more of a rhetorical situation. It doesn't, like, it doesn't <laughs> immediately
0: change the situation no, in any regard. No, but-
1: <laughs> a state premier can't really call a national emergency, but she was trying to highlight the urgency of mm. this. And essentially the argument was case numbers are now growing in Sydney. It's clear that it, there's been difficulties keeping the outbreak under control. And this is something that could spread to other states. This could spread to the regions. This could spread mm. to, well, it's already spread to Victoria, you know, every other state. Therefore, this is a national priority, or it should be, to get this COVID outbreak under control in Sydney, and therefore the Commonwealth and all of the other states should work together to redirect the vaccine supply in order to get as many Pfizer doses in the arms of young people in Sydney as
0: possible, as soon as possible. And mm, how did people take it, Justine? I wouldn't say they were particularly pleased. And I think that the reason for that is because of how the vaccine rollout has gone as a whole. We don't have high numbers of the Pfizer vaccine within Australia at the moment. And that is a problem because the current medical advice for most of Australia is that Pfizer is the preferred vaccine if you are under 60. And if you're over 60, the preferred vaccine is AstraZeneca, which we have so much AstraZeneca. We have so
1: much of it.
0: And so to ensure that more people are willing to come forward and get vaccinated, the reason why the New South Wales Premier wants Pfizer is because the hope is that if we have the preferred vaccine for this age group, more people will go get vaccinated because at the moment they would have to request their GP that they get AstraZeneca against medical advice, which has changed has in like changed. last
1: five hours, um. But we'll get to that. So what happened today? So the immediate reaction to Gladys Berejiklian essentially requesting vaccines be diverted from other states mm. to go to Sydney was um n- outrage. Fuck no. <laughs> Fuck no. Basically, all the other premiers said. And there's been a real sense, I think, especially given that the Melbourne lockdown is actually going very well. Case mm. numbers are dropping. this contact
0: tracing seems to be able to be getting people before they're out in the community. Yes, I was going to say that most people who have got or are contracting COVID have Melbourne. been in isolation in Melbourne during their infectious period. Yeah. And so it's. Being viewed as proof that
1: an early hard lockdown really can work in containing the Delta variant, Mm. which then makes it sort of, it, it increases the narrative of, oh, well, it's the premier of Sydney didn't want a lockdown. She went too late. She was too hesitant. And now she wants our vaccines for a problem she's created is kind of. how it's been seen. And Daniel Andrews, the Victorian premier, also came out and said, no, we're not, don't redirect vaccines, create like a ring of steel around Sydney. Make sure that no one can get out.
0: That's the better solution. Yeah, which, I mean. It's like the Simpsons movie, I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh. (laughs) When they like, they're like, we're just going to put the dome over Springfield and not let anyone out.
1: Is this the public health policy that should become the official stance of the podcast? No. (laughs) Scott Morrison's
0: just in his office being like, I was elected to lead, not to. (laughs)
1: i mean and understandably it's like there's a bunch of vitriol coming from other states people in sydney are then feeling very put upon and attacked Mm. it's been pretty nasty it's not a good position for anyone to be on and as much as we're joking like about doming them um you know it's not the people in sydney's fault that all of this is going on so that's the big controversy and everyone sort of assumed that because gladys you know has been a bit of the golden child in the in the commonwealth's eyes mm. she's been very much praised i think there was a bit of an assumption from the general public that scott morrison was going to be like yeah Give her the vaccines! (laughs) And then he came out and spoke that afternoon and was like... Friday afternoon. Yeah. Sorry. Time means nothing anymore, Justine. (laughs) He came out and spoke Friday afternoon and he said, no, we're not distributing the vaccines differently. We're doing it on a per capita basis. That's how we've always done it. That's how we're going to continue to. Which then... I'm saying that this is all sort of deteriorating, but now it's very unclear what the situation will be moving forward mm. because everything's changed in the last couple of hours. So the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisations, ATAGI, who were the ones who originally made it so AstraZeneca isn't recommended for people under 60. Not the preferred vaccine for people yeah, under
0: 60. Is have the
1: framing of it. Have now changed their advice, saying anyone over 18 in Greater Sydney where this outbreak's happening should seriously consider taking any available vaccine, including AstraZeneca. Mm. So I guess the question is now, has the damage already been done with young people not feeling like they can trust AstraZeneca, not feeling like that's a safe option for them, even though, you know, the statistics sort of show that it overall is very safe?
0: Yes, I think to be Um, very clear, there is like such a tiny chance that AstraZeneca will cause health problems in younger people. Um, But the the reason why ATAGI's advice has changed is because the risk of getting COVID right now if you live in Greater Sydney is so much higher than the risk of any negative consequence of you taking AstraZeneca. And also
1: the Delta variant has proven to be more serious for younger people as well. So the risk of having really, really serious effects or you know repercussions from contracting COVID is also gone up so it, it's tilted the sort of balance uh back in AstraZeneca's favor um you so, know I'm sure you'll know more about it by the time you're listening to it than
0: we have what the reaction's been like So what you're saying is where we're at right now is that the New South Wales state government has asked both the Commonwealth and other states to divert their Pfizer doses to New South Wales to deal with the outbreak because lockdown is not containing things well enough as it is. But since that's happened and every other state and the Commonwealth have been like, no way we're doing that, ATAGI has changed its advice about who can have AstraZeneca, which kind of makes the state government's request for Pfizer a bit redundant because, you know, now anyone under the age of sixty. Can and is recommended to go and have AstraZeneca. So that's the lay of the land as of when we're recording. But one other thing happened this afternoon that I want you to talk about. Mm. You said before it's not Sydney Cider's fault that COVID is spreading and the outbreak is growing in in New South Wales. I would beg to differ that about three thousand five hundred of them have seriously contributed to that problem. What happened? Yeah, I've got I've got beef
1: with about three k. of yeah, and. Uh, About a 1,000 in Melbourne as well. Um, (laughs) People decided to have anti-lockdown protests today. In Sydney and Melbourne. In Sydney and Melbourne. In Sydney, packing the streets. No Mm. masks, no social distancing, some really questionable other conspiracy theory, right-wing racist racist signs signs as well from, you know, parts of that crowd. It was overall just an awful situation, really. Mm. Like, I know that us being mad about people marching, going against COVID rules for anti-lockdown reasons is, like, a bit redundant. Everyone's mad and horrified at the actions of these people. But it really was, like, just, especially in Melbourne where the numbers are going the right way. Like, we're probably going to be out of lockdown soon. Hopefully. Um, That's good. It was, yeah, just really disheartening and awful to see. So with that sort of cheery mood that we're in, mm. we will endeavor to answer your non-COVID questions because honestly, I need a little break.
0: We need we all need a bit of a break. So we're done with the COVID politics, onto the Aussie politics. Yeah.
1: Okay, jumping in, our first question is from the fantastic
0: Darcy. We don't know them, but we assume they're fantastic. I have to assume. <laughs> hit the hit hit play. Hi, guys, I've been really enjoying listening to the podcast. Keep up the great work. My question is, uh, when do you think the next election will be called? And kind of a sub question. Why is it that the party in power gets to choose when the election is called rather than there being a set time every election cycle? Because obviously the party in power is going to choose a time that strategically benefits them. And I don't think that's really fair.
1: This is a great question. Darcy, you have no idea what you've just tapped into. When we had our first ever conversation about potentially starting this podcast, Justine said to me, Matilda, I think we need to start a podcast about politics that explains the basics of politics. Like, like, no one understands why why elections can just be called whenever by the government and the fact that it benefits the government if they can call the elections. <laughs> I want to
0: explain why. Justine? This is my moment! Explain why. It's a very, this is going to be a very quick answer. So, in, firstly, the first part of that question, thank you so much, Darcy, is when is the next federal election going to be called? Okay, so there are certain constraints around when you can call federal elections. It has to be within, a, like, a certain period of time of the last federal election. So, Like three years-ish. Three years-ish. The last official date for when the House and the Senate federal elections can happen together is the 21st of May 2022.
1: And that's when the elections would happen. Scott Morrison would have to call the election, what, a a month, several months before that.
0: Yes, the usual period of time is like two months. The longest I think in recent years has been 54 days for the election being called when the election happens. They try to do it pretty snappy. Uh, so that's when the next joint election of the House of Reps and the Senate would be. But, but, I have a but the election for the Senate and the House of Reps could technically be called at separate times because they do sit on slightly different schedules. It's not as politically advantageous to the government, so probably not going to happen, but if you want the nitty-gritty details, you could have this next Senate election on the 21st of May, that date I just gave you, but you could have the election for the House of Representatives as late as the 3rd of September next year.
1: Is it plausible that we'd have separate elections or is it probably going to be all in one? It's probably going
0: to be one election because the thing that they found, like the Menzies government, which was a long time ago, Robert Menzies for the Liberal Party way before any of us were born. Um, He used to call the elections at separate times. And what they found is that it's politically disadvantageous for the Senate election to be called before the House of Reps election.
1: Okay, so we know that it has to be by the...
0: Probably by the 21st of May next year. And
1: we've also had Scott Morrison saying that the election will be next year. So overall, the takeaway is the election will be held sometime between the 1st of January and the 21st of May 2022.
0: Yes. Now... As to why the government can choose when the election is going to be called. Yeah. Technically, it's the prime minister who can choose when the election is going to be called. Love that. Um, and the whole reason is a very simple answer. It's in the constitution. Yeah. There's some, I don't know, some
1: guy in 1901 thought it was a good idea. They popped it in.
0: I think also as to why the prime minister in power can call the federal election and isn't that politically advantageous to them. Yes, it's really fucking politically advantageous to them because, for example, if the federal election was going to take place this year, the federal government would have a far worst chance of winning given its current standing in the public eye. There's been a lot of scandals, a lot of like perceived mishandling of the vaccine rollout and the outbreaks lately in Liberal-run states like New South Wales. So it wouldn't be great for their political chances to call it this year. The fact that they have the power to call it sometime in the next year is definitely an advantage to them.
1: And for example, when... Australia was, you know, leading the world in COVID response back before anyone was vaccinated. Uh, Everyone thought the federal election was going to be like either Mm. really early next year or even like late this year. People thought it was going to be really soon. And then the vaccine rollout messed up. A lot of scandals happened. And now it's probably going to be as late as possible. You'd want as many vaccinated people as possible to be going to those booths, don't you reckon, just from a political point of view?
0: (laughs) Probably. Um, But going to why the Constitution drafters made it this way – like the Constitution doesn't contain any mention of political parties. Oh yeah,
1: I don't think people thought it was going to be as big a deal as it was.
0: Yes, and so I don't think that the drafters foresaw that it was going to play as big a part in, you know, when elections would get decided.
1: It wasn't understood that things would be as partisan as they ended up being. Yes. Uh, America had the same problem. Their Constitution didn't plan for political parties in the way they should have. It's it's a common problem that we've all had.
0: And yet they do have a date when their election is supposed to they be. They do have said <laughs> election, so So, you know,
1: but also a weird one based on the harvesting schedule, by the way.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so you either get the Prime Minister choosing it or a harvesting schedule. So you choose which one. It's a
1: Tuesday because they needed people to have time to go to church and then walk from their farms to the villages. That's true.
0: Matilda, you've just done some extra credit on this question. Moving on, next question. (laughs) Which comes from Emma James, who asked in writing to us, Matilda, what is the difference between the treasurer and the finance minister, a very good question. And a question that I thought I knew the answer to, but then ended up being kind of wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, okay, what's what's the actual answer? Okay,
1: so I'm gonna give you the extraordinarily broad strokes generalization. Are you ready for it? I'm ready for it. So what does the treasurer do? The treasurer handles all the government's money. Mm-hmm. They write the budget each year, they say we have this much money in on taxes, this much is gonna go here, this much is gonna go there, allocate the coffers out
0: to everyone and they get to do the fun speech where they announce it every year exactly. and feel very special <laughs> um and what does the finance minister do okay so the finance minister has less to do with the
1: actual like money that the government has to work with and more to do with the industry of finance within the country like finance is an industry there's yeah. financial people we got to deal with like interest rates and banks and shares, lots of that stuff so broadly they're more like a regular minister like you know the health minister deals with the hospitals the agriculture minister deals with the farms the finance minister deals with the finance people um <laughs> so that's the broad strokes and now let me massively complicate it <laughs> because okay. it turns out their jobs aren't as different because the treasurer also has a fair bit to do with the finance industry side of things and the finance minister also like deals with a lot of the government spending and like takes control of a lot of like, the especially spending like within Parliament, it's very confusing. There's a lot of overlap and um, one way that I've seen it described, just to help us sort of understand it, is that you can almost think of the Finance Minister as like the Deputy Treasurer. So like, you know if the Prime Minister's away, the Deputy Prime Minister will step up and be the Acting Prime Minister. Yes. Well, if the Treasurer is away, the Finance Minister has to a certain degree the capacity to step up and basically be the Acting Treasurer. So, they have
0: Separate roles to a large extent. Yep. The treasurer, you could argue, a little bit more important. Um, probably oh, a little bit. Use that on me. Um, they deal with the distribution of the money that we pay in taxes yep. and how it's going to be spent and how yeah, the yeah. countries run. As a whole, finance minister much more about regulating the financial industry, but they do sometimes have overlapping concerns that they work together on. Yeah,
1: there's a there's a fair bit of overlap. Uh, the treasurer is genuinely more important. So it's kind of like the important dude and he's like, cool assistant they have slightly different jobs but i don't know it's all money and money's fake at the end
0: of the day so who knows <laughs> it's like batman and robin they're both yeah. fighting crime together
1: and the crime is capitalism <laughs> but they're not fighting it they're supporting it okay <laughs> does that i literally can't say anymore I, i'm done Okay, moving on to, oh, no, more finance. (laughs) This next question is from Michelle. My conservative liberal parents, whenever I try and sort of sway them to consider voting other than liberal, they always say, especially my dad, that they're more fiscally responsible and better with the economy. And I know nothing about how the economy works. Um, so is this correct? Are uh, the liberals better at handing our finances than the labor or hypothetically, the greens government?:
0: I love how they like hypo- how they're like hypothetically the greens government) yeah. <laughs> Hey, they've got one
1: seat. They could get an extra they hundred or so. They have in the house.
0: They could do it. They only need 76 to form a majority. We're going to get to that in the question later, but yes.
1: Oh, 75 to go, baby. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so there is a lot going on in this question, Matilda. Okay. And so to answer it, I'm going to break down my answer into three parts. Oh, fuck. <laughs> we thought that these were going to be short segment questions. No, no. Um, so first things first, Michelle, we need to talk about what fiscally responsible means. Um, It sounds like your parents, especially your dad, has bought into what we like to call a political narrative. Now, all political parties have narratives. It's how they sell their policies, their brand, and get people to vote for them. And sometimes they're true, but sometimes they're just, you know, very clever and effective ways of making themselves sound more electable than they actually are. So, Fiscally responsible is a term that has been used by the Liberal Party since about the 1970s. That's when this narrative really began. They tried to create this story that they're basically better at spending public money than the Labour Party. Now, the argument that's provided is that the Liberal Party says when they're in government, their budget is in surplus. Okay, so lots of words there. <laughs> um, the budget is, as we said,
1: mentioned before, the, the annual document that says we're every little bit of your taxpayer money is going to be going. It's where the government decides who gets what, what's important, blah, blah, blah. You can either have a budget in surplus, which means that you're getting in more in taxes than you're spending on government services, like everything the government does, building roads and such the like, or you can have a budget in deficit, which means that you end up spending more on services than you get in taxpayer money, which means that you need to borrow that money from somewhere. And the situation that Australia is in and also pretty much every other uh, economically developed country on earth is that we currently have a whopping great bit of debt Uh, we got a a fair whack of debt uh, that we will eventually need to pay off and the Liberal uh, Party has always been very concerned with we've got too much debt, we need to start paying that off, we need to get budget after budget after budget in surplus and then we can stop being in debt and then uh, the whole world won't end
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, and so the Liberal Party argues that when they're in power, they put the budget into surplus. When Labor's in power, they put the budget into deficit. Now, Justine, yes, is that true? No. Okay. And that brings me to part two of this answer, which is that this narrative is a narrative. It's not true. It is true that under Labor, the federal budget has gone into deficit. So Labor came into power in 2007. You remember Kevin 07? Kevin we remember him (laughs) and that year we can't bloody forget him (laughs) he just keeps popping up (laughs) and that year uh the federal budget actually had a surplus of 25 billion dollars so under their first year when they took it over from the liberal party awesome great surplus budget but then the global financial crisis hit you remember terrible thing nearly destroyed the world
1: yeah Something to do with banks and loans. <laughs> Unregulated financial sector, yes. Ah, uh, yes, That's why the finance minister oh, is the, the finance minister should have fixed it. Didn't. Yes. Well, well, it's America. It's America. Okay. okay.
0: So to try and stop Australia's economy from going into recession, basically from going tits up, the Labor government was like, we are going to borrow money from the banks and inject it into the economy to try and stop mass unemployment and the collapse of the Australian economy.
1: Yeah, like people, if they have more money, they will keep spending and the government can work out the debt later, uh, but they they can work out the debt better because we're not going to go into massive recession and everyone's going to be sad.
0: It's like a well-known tactic. It's called the Keynesian strategy and it's, you know, widely, you know, used and hailed as a way to stop the economy from collapsing. Oh,
1: it's why we have the Great Ocean Road in, uh, like, in Victoria. We built that as like a keynesian like get a bunch of jobs right after the war
0: oh to stop us all going to the depression
1: either the sydney harbor bridge or the sydney opera house one of those two can't remember which (laughs) okay
0: so by the time the labor party left office according to the australian bureau of statistics labor's total budget deficits like the total number of debt that the country was in was 163.1 billion because of labor's efforts so yes The budget went into deficit, the government went into deficit, but it also stopped Australia from going into recession. Okay, so Kevin Rudd comes into a power in 2007.
1: He delivers a surplus. So myth busted that Labor can never deliver a surplus. Uh, It's unclear really how he would have gone for the rest of time because something absolutely massive happens, which is the global financial crisis, which changes absolutely everything anyway – in order to make Australia not as badly affected by the global financial crisis as other developed nations, uh, Kevin Rudd gets out that budget, spends a shite load of money uh, in order to stimulate the economy. It actually kind of works, um, but uh, then his, his budgets from then on are in deficit. So
0: they can deliver a surplus, but it's, it's they're not always doing it. Yeah, so on the one hand, the Liberal Party's narrative that the Labor Party delivers deficit budgets is technically true. They delivered a number of them over the last, you know, two decades. But it's not entirely their fault, so it's hard to say it was, you know, definitely a bad thing. The other part of this narrative, though, is whether the Liberal Party always delivers a surplus budget. And okay. that is just not true.
1: Does the Liberal Party always deliver a surplus budget? No,
0: so... Under, way back when, Malcolm Fraser's government. They, oh, my God. That yeah. that was
1: not the Malcolm I thought you were going to say when you said Malcolm. <laughs> yeah,
0: so they actually gave nothing but deficits. Uh, they oh. were going through a really tough time. They were trying to deal with a really difficult economy. It was going to, like, double-digit unemployment rates. Right,
1: Malcolm Fraser, that's, like, 70s, 80s. Yeah, so 1975,
0: 1983. Okay, cool, cool. So... Then John Howard comes in a few decades later. Big eyebrows, <laughs> liberal
1: dude, absolutely. Goes on those
0: jogs in the green jumpsuit. Political
1: empire that stretches many, many elections.
0: <laughs> so his budgets were actually in surplus. Okay, so he's a liberal, he's delivering surpluses. Yes, but I would like to say that that had a lot less to do with him reducing government spending. It was a lot more to do with the fact that the government was getting more money in because of iron ore sales to China.
1: Okay, so this wasn't like a delivery, you know, delivering budgets that absolutely stripped back all the government supports, it was that the Australian economy was booming at the time.
0: Yes. Cool. Less about, you know, good financial management, more more money coming in.
1: Okay. Okay. <laughs> and that was, okay, that was right before Kevin. So he was delivering surpluses. Then Kevin comes in. He also delivers a surplus. But then deficit. But then deficit. Okay. Yes.
0: Okay. And then Tony Abbott was elected. And then Malcolm Turnbull. And then Scott, Scott Morrison. Morrison. The
1: current liberal medley that we've had <laughs> the
0: trio <laughs> yeah. it's like the neapolitan the, the um, neapolitan ice cream oh my gosh okay quickly, they're all strawberry flavored
1: <laughs> i was gonna say they're all pretty vanilla
0: <laughs> actually they are technically all strawberry and vanilla because one they're all white dudes but they're all strawberry because all their budgets were in the red oh my gosh you mean
1: we haven't had a surplus budget since the global financial crisis
0: no we have not the liberal government is just keeps delivering deficit budgets they were Uh, In their defense, they were like, next year, it's going to be back in black, baby.
1: Next year in 2019. <laughs> yes. Totally. Okay, so 2019, looking forward to 2020, which we must assume will be the most beautifully economic, flourishing, optimistic year of all, we will finally they be printed, back in black. They
0: printed mugs that said back in black oh on them.
1: Oh God, no. <laughs> the, you know you know why we've had this whole pandemic? Because they fucking cursed it by printing a mug. You, you know, don't, you press don't press commit printing to mugs. that. Stuff. Okay, so 2019, they're like, okay, finally, yeah. we've like clawed our way back out of deficit and next year is going to be the one where we're in surplus. Yes, and then the pandemic hit.
0: Fuck. And so they did exactly what Kevin Rudd did And put tons of money into the economy to stop us from going tits up.
1: Okay, so I think the important context is when Kevin Rudd did this back in the global financial crisis, the Liberal Party was furious. They They were were like, you are an idiot. This is so irresponsible. You're going to be creating debt that we will have to be paying off for decades. This is garbage. This is terrible this is so irresponsible again 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 we have this irresponsibility word they are faced with a similar situation a global financial crisis that is also what covid was mm. and what do they do the Spend a lot of money. same thing yes yeah.
0: now i think this is an important point to just quickly jump in and say that going into deficit is not a bad thing in and of itself like it's not like an inherently
1: terrible thing to do that Well, yeah. The Liberal Party, I guess part of them, a lot of their messaging is that debt is bad no matter what. Yes. And you're, I'm assuming, going to question that right now. Well, yeah.
0: I think that I'm not an economist. I'm not an economics expert. But I did a bunch of reading before doing this segment to prep for it. And everything that I read was saying that it's okay to go into deficit. It's basically just that you're borrowing money from banks that you have to pay back. There are two scenarios when it gets really bad. One is if interest rates go up, meaning that the interest you're paying back on your debt suddenly becomes enormous. That's like the fee that you're paying for borrowing that money. Yes. If that amount gets out of hand, then the government is just diverting taxpayer money to paying off that debt when really they should be using that to pay for government services that year. So that's a bad scenario to go into.
1: Like student loans in America where they just keep racking up and racking up and
0: racking up, right? <laughs> well, any kind of loan anywhere. Yeah, well, yeah, 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 true. Like but I, that's my main
1: frame. I, know, I understand American student loans more than I understand my own debt. <laughs> <tech. laughs>
0: the second scenario when things could go really wrong is if all of your debt collectors come to collect at the same time. Like L- all the banks rock up, come knocking on the door, and they're like, ScoMo payoff
1: which is what kind of happened to greece if you remember a few years ago yeah. like if you have an unbelievable amount of debt and you just do not have the money to pay it back when you need to and everyone starts suddenly asking for your money your entire economy collapses there's a mass impoverishment it's a horrific horrific like the bubble bursts and it's pandemonium basically yes. Yes. which like isn't great
0: It's not an ideal
1: situation.
0: Well, no, then you just, like, make the economy so much worse. So I think that we should just temper this discussion by saying that it's encouraged that both the Kevin Rudd government and the ScoMo pandemic government both went into deficit to support the economy.
1: Yeah, we're not anywhere close to a Greece situation. Australia absolutely isn't in that situation. And so there
0: are things that are bad about going into debt and having deficit budgets, but it's not as inherently bad as the Liberal Party tries to make it out. And there's also...
1: A big argument that our economy will recover from big hits a lot, lot faster if you spend a lot of money at the start. Yes. Okay, so we've had this narrative that the Liberal government's good with money, the Labour government's bad with money, but by going back the last few prime ministerships, we've seen that it's a bit more random than that. And it's actually a lot more to do with like world events, really, at the end of the day than just like straight up. Government policy. Yes. So if you're not in the middle of a financial crisis or if you're not in the middle of you know an absolute boom with China buying all your stuff and the economy absolutely growing, like what difference does that make? what What is the fiscal responsibility that the liberal government keeps talking about it? If the economy is not booming, how do you get into a surplus?
0: Okay. so what this idea of fiscal responsibility has a lot more to do with is the liberal government justifying the way it likes to spend money? So, the Labor government, by contrast, the Labor Party, it has this principle of, you know, we want to use taxpayer money to support things like public hospitals, public education, welfare payments. That's a really big point of contestation between the two parties. So, giving money to things like Centrelink for the unemployed or people who live with disability or veterans, for example. So the Labor Party is much more like we should be spending as much money as we can while being responsible on these public goods, right? The Liberal Party is much more financially conservative about how it should spend money. It has a very different philosophy. And it's much more like the government, we need small government, meaning that the government isn't as Involved in providing and spending lots of money on public services. We should be leaving that up to the private sector. We should be letting people uh, have their own financial independence. They shouldn't be relying on the government to pay for things like uh, unemployment benefits or student benefits. So it's a very different philosophy when it comes to government and how the government should be spending money and helping people. So under a liberal government, we do see a lot less Spending, And that does mean that the Liberal government is more likely to have surplus budgets and quite large surplus budgets because they're prioritizing saving money over spending it on public goods. But that is not that attractive a quality because... The Labour Party can say, hey, we're going to spend money on things that are going to help you everyday Australians. We're not afraid to push money into public services. We're doing this for the greater public good. And so to contest that narrative, what the Liberal Party has really successfully done is say there is a greater public good that we're fighting for. And that is avoiding the evils of deficit. They're saying that by avoiding deficit, we are avoiding financial Catastrophe. We are more fiscally responsible and we are acting in the public good in that way. But what
1: we've also seen is that fiscal responsibility is an unbelievably subjective mm. concept that changes vastly based on world events. And when push comes to shove and there is a situation in which it would be responsible to spend a bunch of money, the Liberal Party, suddenly the whole idea that responsibility is all about pulling back and spending less kind of goes out the window and they go, okay, yeah, actually it was responsible to, you know, in this scenario it is responsible to spend a bunch of money. So their own kind of rhetoric is slightly questioned.
0: Yeah, and they've spent a lot of money. In four years, the total government debt that we're in is going to hit just under a trillion dollars. Like we are in so much more debt right now than we were when Labor was dealing with the global financial crisis. So what I would say to Michelle, going back to our lovely question, Aska, is that your parents probably believe that the Liberal Party is fiscally responsible because they have bought a political narrative. And that is okay because political narratives are designed to be bought by as many people as possible. The best way to counter that is to provide them with the facts, show them how much debt the Labor Party has gone into versus how much debt the Liberal Party has gone into. At the end of the day, though, your parents might still prefer to vote for the Liberal Party because they like the financial policies and the way that the party views how government should spend money. And if that's what they think, that has a lot more to do with, like, the philosophy of the Liberal Party spending money versus how the Liberal Party has spent money over the last few years.
1: Yeah, like, if that is your philosophy, then it is very justifiable for you to feel like the liberal party is the more fiscally responsible party but it's also very important to recognize that fiscal responsibility is not this objective idea it is Mm. profoundly subjective and people who want to vote labor will have a vastly different understanding and belief system about what fiscal responsibility actually looks like it's all in the eyes of the beholder there's no single fiscally responsible party because guess what? A bat can fuck around in Wuhan and then everything will change anyway. It actually is so much more to do with the global economy than anything old Joe Frydenberg can pull out of his hat. Or put on a mug. (laughs) Okay, now to our next question from Aaron.
0: Hello, I'm Aaron and this is my question.
1: Do you think Australia will ever leave the Commonwealth? Okay, so the answer to that is yes, probably, but it will take something massive for it to actually happen. I think first, Matilda, we need to explain what it means to be part of the Commonwealth. Okay, so unlike, say, America, which is also a previous colony of the British Empire, Australia is still part of the British Empire. Like, America split off and was separate and their head of state is no longer the Queen. It's the President. It's the President. Our head of state is the queen of england yes like technically speaking does she have any power over australia and our laws and policies uh, in practice absolutely not um, she has a representative here in australia who is called the governor general they represent the queen in australia they're not an elected official they are technically higher in rank than scott morrison the prime minister <laughs> which our Governor-General, his name is David Hurley, and the fact that I even feel the need to, like, mention and explain what the role of Governor-General is and we have to introduce what his name is, is probably a good indication of how little he has anything fucking to do with Australian politics on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> yeah. Um. So it's really a symbolic role, the role that the monarchy plays, except for, like... of the time in which they can, like, topple the whole government. And they did that once uh, to Gough Whitlam. It's called the Constitutional Crisis. It's a bit wild.
0: Okay, so Australia is still technically part of the British monarchy. The Queen is technically our head of state. The problem is that we don't really see that playing out on a day-to-day basis. Like, that power imbalance does exist, but... It doesn't really show up.
1: Yeah, it exists in in very, very narrow circumstances. But yeah, day to day, the fact that we're a monarchy makes no difference to Australian lives. And that is the central problem that the anti-monarchy movement called the Republican movement. It has nothing to do with the US Republicans, but republic means, you know, to be a country without a monarchy. That is the central problem that the Republican movement has. Because Australia can leave the Commonwealth, it can leave the British Empire, it can have the Queen sort of just off, fuck off to England and our (laughs) head of state. she is and has never left. (laughs) Our head of state would be like an Australian and we would have a president who would be like a symbolic role still. It would basically be the Governor General still, but we'd call them the president. The Prime Minister would still be the main one in charge. It's a bit confusing. But we could do that, but it would require changing our constitution which is the central document Australia was based on. And to change the wording of the constitution, you have to have a referendum. What's a referendum? A referendum is where you ask every single Australian of vote who's eligible to vote to vote yes or no on an issue. So yes. this would be like, should we leave the Commonwealth? And referendums are notoriously, notoriously, notoriously difficult to ever win or pass. Like, a lot of them fail. We had
0: a referendum to to leave England, didn't we? Oh, yeah,
1: we did. So the Republican movement has, at times, really built up steam, built up, and in 1999, built up enough steam that this became a referendum. Like, people cared enough to actually put this to a massive vote. And guess what? It didn't work. No. Also, guess what? Guess who headed up that referendum Republican movement? Gough Whitler? Malcolm Turnbull. Oh! Yeah! Back in the day, back when he was a young, sprightly thing, he fucking hates the monarchy. <laughs> let me tell you. No, he's, he's a massive no, Republican. I, no,
0: I know. I just didn't know he headed it up back in yeah. 99.
1: Also, it still feels wrong to say massive Republican. It Once again, let me stress, nothing to do with American Republican movement. It just means that you don't like the
0: monarchy. So, based on what we know is there a chance that we're going to have another one of these referendums in the near future? Okay.
1: Yes. So there needs to be enough public will to get to a referendum to begin with. Then there needs to be enough public will to actually pass a referendum. Mm. Two massive hurdles. There is a event that is coming up at some point in the future that may propel us to that level of sort of political motivation and uh, momentum. What is it? Uh, The queen
0: dying. Oh (laughs) yeah. It's, it's going to happen. It's going to – I mean – Everyone dies. I mean,
1: we're, we're, not, we're not in the first half of her life. Um, <laughs> so, oh, here's my the God. Thing. Australia loves the Queen. Like, she's really popular. People like Queen Elizabeth. You know who they do not like?
0: Prince Charles. Prince Charles.
1: <laughs> Prince Charles. You may remember him as the naughty boy who had the affair with Camilla and he may or may not be the person that uh, Taylor Swift wrote the song Tolerate It about. Fun fact. Really? Everyone thinks it's written about Princess Diana. <gasps> listen, to, listen. And season four of The Crown came out right about the time that she was writing Evermore. Oh. Yeah. Listen to the lyrics. I, some, I reckon it. This
0: some deep state theory shit.
1: Uh, yeah. Prince Charles, he's never been popular. Uh, he especially wasn't popular after the whole Princess Diana situation. Mm. Um, and the idea of him being our head of state and on our coins and our representative to the world is a lot less palatable for a lot of people than Queen Elizabeth. Mm. And so there is a big theory, and this has been verbalised by Malcolm Turnbull like recently, that like the Republican movement, the time is not now, but the time is coming and – if we're going to leave the Commonwealth, it's probably going to be when the Queen dies. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That So that, yeah, that's a bit morbid, but like if you're a non-monarchy type person, if you don't like the sort of ingrained celebration of colonialism within the Australian political system, if you don't like the fact that technically our head, of, not technically, that the fact that our head of state is an unelected monarch yes um then your moment to shine is having uh that monarch li- li- die li- that monarch die and um little shit prince charles become our head of state make you move then that's the chance you probably have the little kids though, are pretty cute the
0: kids are cute but like is it enough is it enough the entire the entire like success of the British monarch rests on these adorable children's faces. Uh, no,
1: I would say that the entire success of the British monarchy rests on fucking Crown season 4 and how many of us have watched it. That's not that's not favorable to Charles. <gasps> Okay, our next question is from Ange, and Ange asks, what will it take for the Australian Labor Party to get over its fear of entering into a coalition with the Greens if it means getting into government? Justine, I feel like you have a lot of things to say. I can
0: see it brimming within you. You can also see my dot points under the question. Oh, you know, (laughs) whatever, whatever. It's not like we've discussed this beforehand. (laughs) I I think this is a really good question because it gets asked a lot, particularly by people who support either the Labor Party or the Greens and want to see either of those parties in government um, and don't understand why these parties aren't working together to get into government. But I think that it assumes that the only reason why Labor and the Greens aren't in government is because they don't want to work with each other when the truth is it's because even if they did work together, They still wouldn't get into government. Yeah. It's not
1: like, yeah, if, you know, if Anthony Albanese just gave Adam Bant, who's the current only Greens member in the lower house, just one phone call and said, (laughs) why don't we actually be friends? We'll put aside our differences on (laughs) refugee policy and then we'll just... Fuck off the fucking national liberal coalition and they can get right fucked and then we'll take
0: over government. It's not quite
1: that situation, is it?
0: No, okay. So first things first, who holds government in Australia is decided by one thing and one thing only. And that is who holds the greatest number of seats in the lower house, the House of Representatives. So there are 151 seats in the House of Representatives to hold government. Your party or your like group of parties, so like the coalition government, they need to have at least like 76 seats or more to have that majority. And that allows you to pass laws. It's, there's, a, there's a good reason why you have to have a majority of seats. Okay, how many seats
1: does the Liberal National Coalition have currently? 76. How many seats does Labor have? 68. How many
0: seats does the Greens have? One. What is 68 plus one? 69.
1: And which number is bigger, 69 or 76?
0: Yes, but it is a fun number because okay. it's sexy.
1: We do love <laughs> it. The, 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 Nash, the The red-green coalition would give us some really fucking good sex jokes. So <laughs> joining a coalition with the Greens doesn't, like, ridiculously boost Labor's numbers, does it? Because there's no. barely any Greens in the lower house.
0: Yes. Yeah. They're all in the Senate. They're all in the Senate. The voting system works better there for them. them.
1: Yeah, for small parties in general. That's why we have One Nation up there. Yes. But it's not like the Labor Party and the Greens have never, ever worked together to form government before. Can you tell me about what is the, like, rare scenario in which that actually is useful?
0: Yes. So there is a very specific and narrow set of circumstances where Labor could team up with the Greens to form a majority and take government. Happened once in 2010. It was the election where Julia Gillard was running for prime minister. Labor did not get the majority number of seats in the House of Representatives. But wait a second. Neither did the Liberal National Coalition. Exactly. No one did. No one did. These are the only circumstances where it would be politically advantageous for the Labor Party to team up with the Greens. And also, in this case, with all of the like crossbench independence in the House. Neither party, neither the LNP coalition or Labor won the majority. Labor was able to team up with the Greens and the crossbench independents, is what they're called um, and make a deal where they said, you guys are going to help us pass all the legislation we need to pass to form government. Because like, that's what I said, that's why you need to have a majority of seats in the House of Reps because you need to be able to guarantee as a party or a coalition of people that you're going to come together and pass legislation. But that's
1: called a minority government, and that means that the crossbench, like, the Greens and the independents have a ridiculous amount of power. Huge. Because it's, like, what's Labor going to do in that scenario? Like, give up the government to the Liberal National Coalition or, like, bow to the whims of a few independents? Like To annoying
0: people in the middle. (laughs) Yeah, they're going to, like,
1: do what the Greens want in order to stay in power to a certain degree. And so that's, like... When the Greens are influential, they're extremely influential. Yeah. Oh, it's-
0: Labor really wants to work with them then.
1: Oh, they adore each other at that point. Yes. But it's a very specific set of circumstances that that would happen. And it's not good
0: for Labor when they have to team up with Greens. No, because then they have to compromise their own policies to get the support of the people like the Greens and the Independents. So – to summarise, answer this question. It's not that Labor and the Greens don't want to work together. They don't. They don't. But that's not the reason that that's they That's not don't. the reason that they're not doing that. If they could form government together, they 100% would. The problem is that for that to happen, the Liberal National Coalition – can't get a majority in the House of Reps. They have to fall short of that 76, but also Labor has to fall short of that 76. That is the only time when Labor will turn to the Greens and the independents and team up to form government.
1: Yeah. Uh, It just doesn't happen that often. Like, Labor has the power to win government outright, so obviously they would if they could. Um, Also, to be clear, it's not like um, anyone wants to be in a coalition ever. Like, if the Liberal Party could win government without the Nationals, they fucking would. It's not like Scott Morrison's like, thank God I have fucking Barnaby Joyce breathing down (laughs) the back of my fucking neck. I'm so glad that I'm giving up so much of my fucking power to the Nationals. No, like, Liberal would boot the Nationals right the same way that Labor's booting the Greens if they... They bloody could but they just absolutely can't for the last few decades they have no no the liberal party has no chance of winning without the nationals that's the reason the coalition exists not because they just love each other so
0: much okay matilda Turning to our, like, last – these are slightly more fun questions. Um, this one comes from Marty, and they asked, did either of you girls envision a career in Australian politics?
1: I have an unbelievably embarrassing story about this. Okay.
0: Okay. Tell
1: me. <laughs> so I, like, never did uni politics or anything like that. Like, I was disillusioned with the political yes, system yes, by the pure. time that we, get, okay, we got we there. Okay, we get it. No, I'm no, no you. it's fine. But <laughs> I did kind of just hold – this idea in my mind for a lot of my teenage years that I just would one day be prime minister. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah, the vegan atheist bisexual, let's vote for her. She'll be real fucking electable. <laughs> She'll do great at the polls. <laughs> she doesn't, like, believe in money or capitalism. But um, somehow in my mind, I'm like, I just in case I become prime minister, I better safeguard my uh, social media presence We get to schoolies. Okay. I'm with a cool group of people for the first time in my fucking life. (laughs) Finally, we're here. I'm at schoolies. We finished
0: high school. We're born again. The,
1: like, cool lads from the boys' school, their house, also in Sorrento, they came over. They had a beer bong, like, a funnel with a tube. And we were all going to do beer bongs. And everyone's like, oh, my God, Matilda's going to do a beer bong. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then I'm like, oh, no there's going to be footage of me doing a beer bong when I become prime minister. That's going to be a problem. Yes. Yeah. So me trying to be cool still was like, okay, but no one can take any photos of me. And then I put my hood on over my face as much as I could. Keep in mind my school hood that had my name on the back of it. I'm not sure how good this plan was. And then did the beer bong to still try and impress these boys? I don't think that worked. Overall, (laughs) I I know you're like someone uh, hiding in a hood, demanding no one take. No one cared. No one was going to take a photo of me doing this. But just in case.
0: Uh, I love how you're like towing the line between like trying to impress all of your future voters and constituents and trying to impress the hot boys that you're currently in the room with. Like, two minds in totally different places, both fighting for your integrity. I really feel like
1: I just should have, like, seen any politician ever to know that, like, (laughs) doing a beer bong in high school is probably more of, like, a relatable thing that would have got me votes. I mean, obviously... Thank God those photos don't exist, so I've still got my opportunity if I need to have it.
0: And Matilda, you know what I'm most glad about is that after all that effort, you have now immortalised that moment in a podcast.
1: Shit, cut this, cut this segment. (laughs) Do not bring this up in my maiden
0: speech. (laughs) Matilda, if you ever become prime minister, I'm going to attend the ceremony and get a boombox and just play this moment as you're trying to talk. I
1: can bear. I didn't even win school captain. I'm not getting prime minister.
0: Okay, Matilda. We've walked through the fires on yes. the coals. We've yes. answered all the answered all the questions. Yes. We've we've asked a lot of questions. I yes, think we as have. well. Armed um, that we haven't answered,
1: raised but- more questions than answers. Some <laughs> my, some may argue.
0: But we like, what is the finance minister like? In fairness,
1: we have not answered that at this point. <laughs>
0: But turning to our final question, which comes from Saxon Mullins. Very good, best friend of the podcast, Saxon Mullins. We like to think of her as our best friends too, even though we've never met her. But she came on our show a couple of weeks ago. Go listen to the episode. It was a question time, our first ever question time episode with Saxon Mullins. Yep. And she asked on our Instagram, I mean, obviously, the question is, when all the restrictions are done, will you be taking a trip to Questacon for the podcast, please and thank you?
1: The answer is a hard Yes. A hard yes. A hard yes. That was easy. We'll avoid Parliament House.
0: (laughs) Just go to Questacon. Just Questacon. (laughs) Questacon back home. (laughs) You want to go to the states? You want to go to the Australian capital city for the first time in your entire life and just go to the science museum?
1: Yeah, a few of the politicians I now know read my live blog, so I don't want to accidentally meet them. I
0: think it would be awkward. And I used to work there. That would be really awkward.
1: Sorry, do you want to go back to Parliament House (laughs) Questicon time, baby!
0: (gasps) <gasps> That's all we have time for this week. I
1: am not even going to groan this week. I had a lot of fun.
0: That was a lot of fun. Thanks yeah. so much for all your questions, guys. And we also need to say a big thank you to everyone who shouted us out on Instagram this week. I uh, posted the, them
1: listening to the podcast in their Instagram stories, tagged us at Old Boys Club Pod. It is an amazing
0: way to help get the word of the good word of the good podcast out there. And so we need to say thank you to Catherine, The Herder Jenna, Tiana, Claire, Rochelle, Ruth, Reese, Samara, Alexandra, The Nasty Woman Club, Mandy, Stink. Stey, Bronte, Morgan, Ashley, Martin, and to everyone who commented on Spotify Australia's Instagram post this week calling out for the best new podcast that they've discovered this year for commenting us.
1: We had no idea. We just wa- we, we, we walked in and there was like a... Dozens of Old Boys Club moments on that post. It was wonderful. So we see you, we thank you, we appreciate you. We love you. Also, before we go, we'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the land of the Buruong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation.
0: We pay our respects to elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. And we also acknowledge the country that you are joining us from and pay our respects to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. Now, the theme music for this podcast is by the amazing Alexis Weaver. Our show is produced, mixed and edited by Anthony Furchie and Alex Tai. I'm Matilda Bosley. I'm Justine Landers hanley And, and this, this is Old Boys Club. Boys Club.
1: Mostly about Taylor Swift songs, to be honest at this point, but that's the way we like it.
0: Break us in ruins.
1: No, we're not it singing it well. Really if we're I'm singing it, go. we're singing it badly. Kidding. Game the the lose it and watch me tolerate it. This is about Princess Diana. We won't admit it, but Taylor Swift was watching the crown while writing evermore. Prince Charles was having an affair. And also he was a dickhead.